Hey everybody, welcome to season two of the Mixmasters podcast. I'm your host, Steve Litcher, and for those not familiar, I'm the touring front of house engineer for Stitched Up Heart. Working with Stitched Up Heart has led me to meet an incredible number of really talented people, and I wanted to introduce you to them. I wanted to let you hear their stories and learn from their experiences. This is really your chance to listen in on behind the scenes talk and to learn from some of the best in the business. I have to give a huge shout out to my pal, Merritt Goodwin, for this killer intro music. Merritt is the lead guitarist for Stitched Up Heart, and he's also an extremely talented composer. Give him a follow on Facebook at Merritt Goodwin or on Instagram at Merritt Goodwin Official. Now let's bring up the faders and jump into this episode of Mixmasters Podcast. We have a special episode of Mixmasters in store for you today because it features not one, but two guests, both of whom work for the band I Prevail. I was really lucky to get to speak with Josh Sobeck, who's the front of house engineer, and Josh Mahan, who is the monitor engineer for I Prevail. The discussion was really fascinating because you got to see both ends of the snake. We got to discuss how each of them work together and learn a little bit about the various tips and tricks that they're utilizing while they're on the road with I Prevail. Josh Sobeck lives in Phoenix, Arizona. Josh Mahan is in the Texas area. And Josh Sobeck also owns a production company called Phoenix Productions. I'd encourage you to check out both of these guys online. Their discussion today is absolutely phenomenal. So let's jump in and take a listen. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Mixmasters Podcast. And this is going to be a special treat because we're not going to just chat with one guest. We're going to talk to two people, both of whom work for a band called I Prevail. And it is my absolute pleasure to be joined by Josh Sobeck and Josh Mahan. Gentlemen, uh, welcome to the podcast today. Josh Sobeck, I'll call you Josh S and then Josh M. Uh, Josh S, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thanks for having us, Steve. Yeah, my pleasure. Josh M, how about you? Oh, I'm great, man. It's the first time weather's dropped below 70 in Texas in a long time, so I'm hanging hanging good. Yeah, that's always a good day because uh, the heat can be a little oppressive. And I'm and Josh S, you're in Arizona, so you're probably in a similar situation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if we want to talk about heat, I mean, <laughs> uh, this is the second day in a row that we've had under a hundred and over three months. So it is very, very welcome. You're, uh, you're pulling me away from our constant outdoors right now. Everyone's living outside because we can again. I was going to ask if you busted out the winter coat yet or not. <laughs> uh, I went outside to let my dog out this morning. It was 65 and I was, I'm a little ashamed to say that, uh, I felt like a t-shirt wasn't cutting it. Uh, quick diversion. I used to have a, a former girlfriend who lived in Palm Springs, Palm Desert, and I went out to visit her in like uh, January and it was, you know, 65, 68 during the day. And I saw a woman mowing her lawn in a North Face parka. Yep. And I was out walking around in shorts and a t-shirt being a Wisconsin boy. So I was like, this is great. Oh yeah. No, I mean, I'm, I'm a Michigan boy at heart. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a little embarrassing to say that 60, 65 is cold now, but Hey, that's, that's life when you've been at 115 for three months straight but what's the it's a dry heat right so it's not as it is we're at 15 percent humidity it's 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 nice and crispy and it's quite beautiful everyone should try it i'm at 84 percent humidity today oh my goodness all right well uh let's uh stop talking weather because there are other podcasts dedicated to that subject we're here to talk about sound and i really am excited to talk to you guys i prevail is a, a favorite band uh between my girlfriend and i 
In fact, we were talking about I Prevail earlier today. Uh, a song was playing on the radio that we used to really listen to and enjoy uh, before it sort of before it sort of broke and got popular. So um, those guys are doing great, and I'd love to learn a little bit about the both of you. So it's going to be a little different here with tag teaming this, and I'll try to alternate between who goes first and and whatnot. But uh, uh, Josh Mahan, let's talk a little bit about your history. Um, where did you grow up? Where did you first get introduced to music, and how did you sort of land in the role that you've got today uh well you know i've been in texas my whole life so i grew up here i was born in san antonio but then recently after that kind of uh, around kindergarten or first grade moved into the country and uh started just i guess doing country things for a few years but then i found a, a group of dudes that were really cool and that kind of liked to make music too because i was just playing guitar in my bedroom for a while so uh, we started playing music and wanted to do shows at people's houses and whatnot so uh, it's pretty much the same story as everybody i bought a pa so i was the only one that knew how to use it and then you know kind of got interested in all that we went to recording studios to try and work on material I got infatuated with all the gears that was sitting in the racks and on the walls and just decided that it was something that i wanted to pursue so that's kind of what, you know, just kickstarted all that kind of the cliche sound guy story. Oh, and I play bass too. So, you know, another cliche, cliche for you. I was going to ask if you uh, played any type of an instrument, but you, you answered, you read my mind or you've listened yeah. to enough of the other podcasts that you knew that I was going to ask that. So. <laughs> uh, flip it over to Josh uh, Sobeck. How about you? Uh, the first of many very similar answers as you'll come to hear between us, uh, you know, I grew up in a suburb outside of Detroit. Uh, similar story where, you know, I, I grew up kind of playing music all my life. I started on piano and then, you know, I got into a rebellious preteen teenager and picked up the guitar and discovered rock and roll and uh, started making music at my parents' house in the garage with a bunch of friends. And, uh, you know, we wanted to record our music. None of us had the money to go to a studio or anything. So I bought, you know, cheap interfaces and mics, you know, whatever I could afford at the time and taught myself how to do basic demos for, you know, my middle school, high school bands and sort of just, uh, you know, snowballed from there into professional audio eventually. But that's, that's kind of the nutshell of where I came from also. Did either of you do any sort of formal education uh, for sound production or anything in the entertainment industry after you got out of high school? Yeah, actually, I went to uh, CRAS, the Conservatory of Recording Arts and Sciences here in Phoenix, actually. Um, I did that right out of high school. That's the only formal like post-high school education I ever did. Uh, I went to the Art Institute for like a semester and a half and quickly realized that it wasn't quite my jam. Um, so and that was when I lived in Austin for like a year out of high school. So then I came back to San Antonio and did this trade school uh, called the Audio Engineering Institute. And um it was really great. I had an awesome experience in their program, did it in about a year. And then I actually ended up teaching there for a couple of years and ran their uh, live mixing lab class. So that was a pretty cool experience too. But um, So then when you got done with schooling and education, how did you guys break into the, uh, the touring world? Did you do the typical white van tours or did you, were you able to, you know, jump leapfrog that stage and start uh, touring with, bandwagons and whatnot or how did that progress and we'll start with uh josh s uh so out of the conservatory i moved back to michigan and just started doing uh primarily live audio in the detroit area you know i worked for a lot of churches in the area um i did i did some recording stuff i helped manage a local recording studio in michigan for a little while 
and just kind of built up a resume and started knowing people. And that was kind of a comfortable life for a little while. And then um, there was this uh, local Detroit band called Wilson. Uh, they're not around anymore, unfortunately. I'm sure you know them being from the Midwest. Uh, so I would I did front of house for them uh, for a little while. They were my first sort of touring experience, and that was that was white van style. Um, I didn't I didn't put in as as much time as a lot of dudes have, but that was that was my first experience in the touring. And then uh, honestly, from Wilson, you know, I I started becoming friends with the I Prevail guys right around the time that they were blowing up, and I mean, it just went from there. You know, I was the the first crew guy they ever hired and we thought we were going to be in a van and things got so big so quick that it was actually a bandwagon so i i've done a little bit of white van time not a ton but i've 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 paid one of my dues not all of them uh but for the most part you know i started in a bandwagon with the with the majority of my touring the uh i'm going to jump in for one second uh last summer i did a little trial run tour with stitched up heart and wilson was on that tour also and they had a red van yep so i don't know if that's like red rocket yeah exactly yeah they put bunks in that thing it is it's 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 an upgrade yeah the other thing that surprised me was their uh the the door to the trailer when they opened it it had this like huge shoe library hanging from it with just tons of sneakers and i was like wow that's uh that's a great idea one and that's impressive uh, collection of sneakers. <laughs> <laughs> Those guys are awesome. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, Josh M., how about you? Uh, so I, after school, started out doing the kind of like smaller church thing for a little bit. That was like my first, one of my first gigs. Um, and then just jumped into a, like a, another small country venue and then kind of moved from there into just a bunch of small little clubs, like rock clubs and whatnot. Um, then I got acquainted with a couple production companies and, you know, after I built up my resume a little bit, I was doing a, a lot more contract work as like a one front of house or monitors, you know, with these, uh, like Texas, uh, production companies. So that I was kind of doing that. And, you know, I never did like a cheesy grimy van tour. So I kind of, you know, skipped out on that, but I've just worked so many and worked with so many bands on through those tours and mixed a ton of them or help people mix them. But, uh, yeah, funny story, man. Actually, I was working at this venue for a day that I didn't even want to be at for the day. I was working at this other venue or trying to get into another venue from there. And then uh, this venue Fitzgerald's in town needed like a fill in for the day. So I was like, yeah, I'll go do it. You know, I prevail is going to be there. So I was like, yeah, I mean, that, you know, they're rad. Wage war was opening. I love wage war. So I was like, I go work that show, help those dudes out. But I couldn't get in for loading because I was working at Sam Ash at the time. And since I was kind of helping out, like I could say like, hey, this is the deal, though. My other my other gigs kind of going already. So uh, I show up late and it's like Sobex there. It's the first time I'm ever meeting him and he's just having the worst day. Like he's yelling at people. My manager's freaking out, running somewhere else. And, you know, all hell's basically broken loose. So I basically start running around and just doing everything I can to put Band-Aids on as many things as I can. Um, I can confirm it was it was awful and it started to get better when he showed up. (laughs) Yeah, so I just started kind of helping Sobek out because he was done with with the previous team that was working there and helped him get into the subs. And uh, yeah, I come to find out that they were trying to say that the subs weren't blown. And I didn't realize that, you know, we were lying to the tour that day or, you know, whatever. I was just coming in. So I was like, oh, yeah, they got a blown center section of subs. So we had to get other subs flown in. And it was it was like one of the worst days, but it was one of the tightest days. Cause that was the day I got to actually meet Sobek. And then, you know, we got to talking afterwards and realized we had a lot of stuff in common. I complimented his pro two that he brought in in this tiny little club. 
So we hit it off pretty well. Was that a full-size Pro 2 or the Pro 2C? That was a Pro 2C. Oh, okay. He had waves, though. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, I want to talk about all that stuff. Uh, So how long have you guys been working together with iPrevail then? So like he said, so we met, that would have been like winter, spring of 2017. Yeah, I think it was like February 2017. Yeah, like February 2017. And then uh, I hired him about a year later. So we've been working together for two and a half years. No, sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll all be working together again before too long. But um, that's a discussion also probably saved for a a different genre of podcast. (laughs) And it just depresses me. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So uh, when you guys are getting ready to go out on, well, with you having worked with I Prevail now for so long together, I imagine that this question is a little bit theoretical. But how do you go about preparing for a tour? You know, like say you're say when you first started working together, what type of coordination did you have to do with one another? Uh, were there compromises from either side that you had to make? Like, you know, Josh Mahan wants to do something one way, and Josh Sobeck's like, no, I'd rather do it this way. Can you sort of talk me through how you guys started working together with I Prevail and some of the things that you had to coordinate on or, um, you know, yeah. Um, I mean, it's another easy answer. We, we, we agree on pretty much everything. There's, there's very few things that we disagree on. Um, I'm very fortunate to have someone at the other end of the snake that doesn't have a lot of different opinions about stuff. And, you know, Josh, stop me if I'm wrong, but, um, for the most part, like Mike choice, Mike placement, we, we pretty much agree on most of that stuff. So, you know, when we first started working together, um, uh, Josh is really the first like full-time monitor engineer the band ever had, you know, like before that they were doing the X32 app thing where they were mixing their own ears. So this is like the first time a real monitor engineer is coming in. And so we actually got to say, Hey, like, we need a full-size monitor console now. So it's like we took a second Pro 2C for that. I had one at front of house. We got a second one at monitors for him. And it was like, hey, we can we have more channels now because, you know, the X32 is limited to 32 channels. Obviously, Pro 2C can go up to 48. So it's like, hey, we got some more channels. What do we want to do with that? Uh, let's make a more unified input list. Everyone gets every channel instead of making those compromises that sometimes we have to make. Um, and just going through and doing the paperwork was a lot of our first experience working together is I, I made an input list as the front of house guy said, Hey, this is what I'm thinking. What do you think? And, you know, we went back and forth, tweaked a couple things, maybe changed a couple mic choices, um, you know, talked about the order of stuff, but by and large, it was like, Hey, we've, you know, I've been, I had been doing the gig for a number of years and kind of had things locked in out front. And it was like, Hey, now we get to grow your side of the snake. You know, what do you want to do with that? Yeah, it's been pretty good, honestly. It's it's a good team to to work together with, um, especially both sides of Snake. Like he said, we we agree on all the mic placement and everything, and we've worked together on it too. It's not like one of us just decides it. We just both want to execute the same, you know, end goal, which is the totally. best thing that you can ask for for an audio team on on a tour. Yeah, and you've you've actually convinced me to change some of the mic placements over the years, you know, because because I'm doing double duty as tour manager as well, and. Right. So a lot of the, a lot of the times over the years, like I would put mics in a, up in a certain way, just because that's how I had done it. And I didn't necessarily have the time in my day to play around with other stuff where, you know, now Josh is here doing audio and nothing else. So it's like, Hey, I think this could be cool. Let's try it. And I'm always, usually I'm always down for it. Yeah. You know, like we had, a we, we had overheads kind of like underheads where they were kind of more hidden because the band appreciated the visual of not seeing mics above a kit. 
And one day Josh was like, Hey, you know, in the, in the ears, we're not getting the sounds that we're looking for. I think we should try traditional space pair overheads. And we tried it and it was awesome. So I'm, I'm usually open to suggestions. You know, I'm not, I'm not one of those guys that's been doing it forever. That's stuck in my ways and the way I'm doing, it's the way that we got to do it. I'm, I'm totally open to try something new. Right. I like how we go through input lists too when we make them for prepping for a tour or anything. And we're always like, both of us are just so nitpicky that we always want to oh, yeah. right? And you know, it all it all makes sense. And then we both agree on it. And like, there's never any hiccups or anything that comes up that's kind of stupid. And I like that we you know think that thoroughly about it. Yeah, we're we're pretty like OCD neurotic about our tour prep. You know, like our our input lists are color coded by group and sub snake. Like every everything matches everything's labeled you know it's like um you know my company is our audio vendor so you know we've got our own shop where we do all of our own prep and everything is just every minute detail is covered before it leaves the shop so we're we're always on the same page about what we're doing before tour and we'll just go and spend days in the shop retaping everything making everything pretty again and um you know that's the kind of stuff we love to do together yeah i love doing that as well um if you ever want to have a uh a fly on the wall. I'd love to be that guy. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Totally. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the pre-production process then. So um, it, is I Prevail still rehearsing before a tour, generally speaking, or is it just you guys really getting together in the shop? And as you said, tidying everything up, cleaning it up and then hitting the road or how does that process work? Um, let me give you the big picture and then I'll let Josh cover some of the more details. Um, so I also have the role of like uh not full producer within the band because they, uh, you know, Tyler Smith, who's an amazing studio producer, does all their albums. Um, Tyler's a good friend of mine and we work very closely hand in hand where, you know, he's doing the studio records, but then I'm like producing the live show. So I'll get, I'll get the studio album stems from Tyler, pull them into my Pro Tools rig and go through work with the band. Like, hey, like what's the show going to look like? What songs are we playing? Um, you know, you know, obviously we're using some tracks, like there's every band's using tracks these days. Uh, so, you know, I'll go in pro tools, take the studio stems, decide, Hey, what's going to go into the live stems? What are they going to play live? Make all those decisions. And, uh, from there I'll build the Ableton session with the studio stems, get the band going at rehearsal, uh, in Michigan. They absolutely do rehearse before every tour. They are, uh, kind of self proclaimed uh business metal is the term we come up with because uh we like to do like eight or nine a.m rehearsals and then we're done by lunchtime and you got the rest of the day these guys are super organized super with it just get up grind it get it done so you know i'll i'll get the the uh the rehearsal session started and then you know mayhan kind of takes over on monitors and kind of runs rehearsals from there and i'm just there to kind of make you know, Ableton session tweaks or stem tweaks or whatever they need. But Josh is kind of the rehearsal master as it, as it will. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a great process. Cause sometimes I'll go in and, you know, Sobek will fly me out. And this is when he was living in Michigan. Uh, he would fly me out early ahead of time. And we'd run, we run over some of the stems together and I'd be sitting there while he's like pulling out stems and putting them into what's going to get bounced into the, uh, you know, the Ableton file. So we can come up with like, ideas then or you know i'm sitting there in rehearsal i'm like oh yeah no steve was playing that tension part or dylan's playing the tension part or whatever and then we'll like take it out of the stems or like nobody's covering it so we'll leave it in so it's kind of all this thing but uh yeah once we're you know rocking and rolling in the studio it's kind of um making decisions on level for the tracks whether we're going to be doing it like 
you know, clip gain or something in Pro Tools, or if we're going to be writing automation for just the output of, you know, the input fader. And uh, Gabe, our drummer, is actually one of the more vocal ones about like what needs to happen for because he's got a lot of the tracks in his ears and he'll be like, I think the synth should get louder here or whatever. So we'll just kind of write it in and go th- comb through the entire show a few times over the course of a few weeks and really just, you know, lock it in. Are you guys using any yeah. type? Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to step on you. No, I was, was, was going to say like these guys are just uh, it's 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 super fun working for a band that's like minded because, you know, like I said, we're super neurotic attention to detail. You know, the band guys are the same way. They uh, they they have the luxury of rehearsing in our audio shop. So, uh, you know, they're one of the few bands out there that rehearse year round with a full tour audio rig. You know, we're on a pair of Midas Pro X's at both ends of the snake now. And, you know, so they're they're getting their full what is it now 56 channel audio input for rehearsals and it's not just a you know a, a mini at home rig that changes when you go to a pre-production facility you know it's right it's like they're they're doing their full rehearsal setup uh like it is on stage they're going through every little detail you know some a lot of times if i'm at a rehearsal i'll uh i like to just hit record on my front of house rig and you know go back and mix it after the fact in virtual sound check um, a lot of times I'll sit there as a producer and, you know, if they're working on a, an alternate live intro different from the album, like I'll sit there as a producer and give them thoughts on that and, you know, very much collaborate in that process, which is, which is really cool to have that kind of relationship with a band. Yeah, that's, uh, that's fantastic, especially, you know, being on the live side of things that they have that much trust uh, in you and that they, you know, value those opinions and ideas. That's really fantastic. Um, before I, when I was interrupting you, sorry about that. I uh, was, okay. I was curious are you guys carrying your own PA then as well? Or when you're rehearsing, what are you, are you doing anything for uh front of house PA? Oh gosh, I would love to carry PA. We're so close to that, man. Um, we were, we were starting to have that conversation right before COVID changed the world. Uh, we're so close to that level. Um, no, we, we are, we're a band that does not carry PA. Um, I'm not a big enough audio company where I have PA in shop either. Um, so I'm in a kind of like a little, uh, I mean, it's an office that I've turned into like a little mixing room. Um, I'm on a, I, for I prevail, I usually have a pair of, uh, like Mackie 824, like big studio monitors. Um, they're near fields, but I feel like they mimic a PA really well cause they're super high horsepower. So that's, that's what I'm mixing on for front of house prep. And Josh, are you using any type of a Q wedge or are you just pretty much, uh, mixing on ears? Um, on stage, no, it's all ears for me. I got this shout speaker that I slam stuff through sometimes. I'm sure it annoys the hell out of everybody. Um, but the guys run side fills, but we don't have any uh, downstage wedges, no no drum fill for now. Um, so I don't really have a cue wedge. I just kind of go up with an iPad during a, if we are blessed enough, if we're on support to get you know a full sound check, and I'll just run some virtual and make sure that everything's kind of locked in. The last few times we've uh, just been tying into the side fills that have been carried for the headliner. So I haven't had to do too much, you know, graphic EQ work in between sets. Um, Cause you know, the stadiums are pretty consistent or the hockey arenas that we were doing, at least were pretty consistent. So small tweaks, but yeah, just ears for me. Are you guys uh, doing anything special from a system processing standpoint? Like uh, Josh S are you doing anything front of house? Are you carrying a lake or anything like that? Yeah, actually um, I've got an LM 44 in my front of house rig. So we tie in, uh, I just, my pro X goes into the lake and then, um, I've got this fantastic system tech. Uh, one of my best friends, his name's Michael Lakevold. He is the 
third part of our little team audio here. Um, he, uh, he, cause I'm tour managing, like I said, you know, I don't have a ton of time in my day for audio, especially with the band at this level. So Michael's amazing. He gets my rig set up every day, tested. He tunes the PA for me. Um, you know, if we're at a festival, he'll let me know if we get any time with the rig before doors open. Um, but yeah, he'll, uh, he'll take the, uh, I'm running AES out of the pro X into the LM 44, uh, left, right, sub fill. Um, and then, uh, from there we can either go AES out of the lake at front of house, analog out of the lake at front of house, or I can do, uh, if we need to tie in at the stage level, if that's better for whatever venue, I can utilize the, uh, Midas AES 50 tie lines to get AES out of the lake back to my stage box and go analog out at the stage level. We love AES 50 tie lines. Yes, we do. We send talkbacks over those too. Oh yeah, we we utilize um, uh, probably what probably close to a dozen tie lines now between our two consoles, sending various talkbacks, shout mixes, mm-hmm. uh, our LDs in ear mix. I was going to say the LD mix moved to tie lines too. Yeah, that comes from it. We uh, it took us a minute to figure out how to do it because it's not immediately obvious if you're even if you are a Midas guy like we are. You know, it's um, right. And when we uh, went to Europe this last time, I even like had a brain fart when I was setting up the consoles we were renting. I was like, yeah, when I was putting the tie lines back in order, I mean, I even stumped myself for half a second. Yeah. But once you figure it out, it's, it's brilliant where you can just digitally share any source from either console back and forth seamlessly over the network, which is super convenient for, you know, a production size of ours. It's a great segue because I wanted to sort of do a little bit of a rig rundown, uh, rig rundown light. Um, what are you guys using for a stage box? Uh, we've got three of the DL two thirty one boxes, which is the you know dual head amp, uh, super super cool box. Um, Such a I'm fan. Gonna, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna turn into the the Midas salesperson for a minute here. You know, it's it's uh twenty four inputs, twenty four outputs. Uh, digital split dual head amps so we're not sharing head amps we each have individual control of analog preamps without needing to use a copper split although we do carry a copper split as a backup or if we need to give you know a disconnect to a broadcast truck or whatever um super cool you know it's like uh the first the first unit uh 24 outputs i get and then the second two units, the next 48 outputs Josh gets, you know, obviously monitors doesn't need 48 outputs, but we have it available to us. Um, so yeah, that's the, that's the IO we're using. Are you splitting those stage boxes left, right, or are they all sitting in one spot? Uh, yeah, all of the, all the Midas gear is uh, over in monitor world. So both of the neutron engines for both pro X consoles, as well as the three two thirty one boxes are all in one sort of big double wide execution rack. We call it. Um, and then we've got, like I said, we do carry a, like a whirlwind copper split system on stage. And then we're using, um, just 12 channel whirlwind sub drops on W1 disconnects scattered throughout the stage. Um, and the other cool thing that we're doing that not a lot of people are doing right now is, um, wherever possible, we're doing, uh, cat snakes. So, uh, cat five drop snakes. So, um, you know, like drums is traditional analog W1 snakes, but uh, all of our guitar rigs are uh, cat snakes. So each guitar, because we're on, um, we're now on a combination. For the longest time, we were just on Fractal Axe Effects Direct. But uh, recently this year, the guys added live Mesa amps as well that we're miking in tandem with the Fractals. 
Um, so each guitar rig has two cat drop snakes at it. So eight channels of XLR into two cat five lines at each guitar location. And then um, each backline guy has a four channel cat five snake that's carrying either one or two lines of audio over cat five. Uh, every backline guy gets MIDI over cat five and then also just LAN network signal over cat five. So like, you know, all the guitar rigs have sure wireless rack units in them. So Josh is able to do uh, RF coordination from workbench, having everything connected on a network. So every, every device everywhere on stage is networked over LAN every device on stage everywhere is networked with MIDI so that we can do uh, time code. We can do guitar tone changes over MIDI. Every, everything is automated and networked. It's actually pretty cool. Yeah. People don't believe me when, um, you know, when the pandemic first hit and I was talking with guys like Pooch and um, you know, some of the bigger name guys, Eric Rogers and, and they were like, if you don't come out of this pandemic a little bit smarter, you know, you're cheating yourself. And if you are not familiar with networking, yep just become comfortable with basic networking concepts. And you guys are demonstrating like how, what a role computer technology is playing in live production these days. So that's uh that's really fantastic. That's I'd love to check that out in person someday, just totally. selfishly speaking. <laughs> yeah, no, of course I, I think they're uh, Josh, I think we, we have more cat five snakes than copper snakes at this point. Right. Yeah. We utilize cat five and you know, cat six as much as we can. Uh, speaking of being a fan, I'm not a fan of the W1 connector. I've been bitten by that thing so many times. <laughs> so. Yeah, they're really nice when they're new. You know, like I said, I was, I'm I'm the vendor, so you know, I, I bought all the copper new at some point. It's just like, man, the first tour we went out with, it's like this is great, and then the last tour, it's like, yeah, this box is kind of sticky. Yeah, it happens. Uh, it's a lot of me fighting off. Like, you know, stage people from like, oh, let me disconnect. It's okay. You get that. Like, I can, I'll just do the connections, you know, but uh, <laughs> yeah. people still seem to grind them around every now and then. I told the story on another podcast, but I had a stagehand uh, literally screw me uh, in air quotes on my <laughs> W1. Uh, I wasn't paying attention first show of the night. He undid the W1, put the cap on the end of the the stage box and jammed the cap in there. Man. And I spent the next two shows trying to unjam that cap. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. Yeah. So my uh my front of house system tech, Michael, he uh he said there's nothing worse than being on tour with the guy that owns the copper snake. Yeah, I've heard him say that. <laughs> <laughs> if uh if he's gotta do something questionable, he always makes sure I'm not in the room before he does it. Yeah. I, uh, sorry, I'm, I was cracking up off, off mic there. Um, so you, we talked a little bit about RF coordination, uh, Josh Mahan, do you want to talk a little bit about how many channels of RF you're using and is it all sure based or what are you doing from a wireless standpoint for like ears and then, uh, microphones and body packs and things like that? Man, it's been a minute since I've done the, the count, but we've got, you know, four wireless mics and then like six wireless guitar packs and then everyone is on here so it's like i think it's seven 17 or 18 total i was gonna i was gonna guess 17 but i wanted to work through i think it's like 17 or 18 yeah so yeah that sounds right but it's all sures except for uh the actual in-ear transmitters are sennheiser g3s and um my q pack is actually a g4 because we needed to get an extra one and they didn't sell g3s anymore and um it does sound better. It's weird. The noise floor of hiss doesn't raise when you <laughs> slam the the pack. So, you know, there's a little difference. 
And I'm assuming you're using lots of uh, antenna combiners. Are those um, from Sure or RF Venue or somebody else? We've got two Sure ones for the mics and then one RF Venue uh, combiner for the transmitters. I'm a fan of that uh, RF Venue combiner for the ears. That seems to be a pretty solid device, and it's about, what, a third of the price of the Sure version? Yeah, uh, I was going to say... TM budget guy jumping in here. Yeah, the RF yeah. venue stuff is awesome. <laughs> yeah, because the uh, the band owns a lot of their RF, so you know I'm always making recommendations of like, hey, like this is this is a good purchase versus hey, save your money, wait for this, you know, because being a vendor, I'm you know I've got kind of the inside scoop on a lot of stuff on the dealer side of it. So you know, uh, eventually we're definitely going to switch ears over to like PSM 1000 or something and drop that, and at that point that'll all be sure. RF, which is always nice. Yeah. I mean, you know, coordination when it's all sure, cause I'm using workbench anyway. Um, and it's all great. I can, I can import everything with a push of a button and then I just go and type in the Sennheisers manually. And it takes, you know, maybe a minute and 30 seconds longer, but you know, we yeah, cause you're, what are you can. doing? You're, you're doing all the scanning and everything in workbench. And then like for your ear frequencies after they're generated, just typing them into WSM manually. Well, yeah, I scan on the RF Explorer, then right, know, right. take take the um, RF venue. What's this thing called? Oh, Vantage. Yeah, the Vantage. Yeah. The Vantage. Um, I take the Vantage file and export that into a workbench. And then, you know, from there, I just import everything into the sure stuff. And then I just take the numbers and visually pull up the uh, uh, the Sennheiser program and then just kind of manually import them. Man, I haven't had to pull up any of these programs for so long. It's taken me like five <laughs> seconds to remember what they're all called. I know. Like you're talking about, even just talking about making input lists earlier. It's like, man, I haven't had to do that in a minute. Yeah. Yeah. It's been what, seven months or so since we've probably all been out and about yeah. at least. Try not yeah. To, yeah. I'm trying not to think about it. We, um, yeah, we, I flew out of Amsterdam in the middle of everything when the president spoke. Um, I got home March 13th, but I had to stay back and make sure. So Josh left with the band. Um, cause he's the tour manager, you know, we got to make sure everybody gets out. Uh, but Michael, um, our LD Graham and he's our PM also, uh, and I, us three stayed back and we did the eighth day flop and, uh, the lighting company flop. And well, I mean, that's it, all the lighting stuff went back. So we just made sure all their stuff was spoken for, but I had to get mixed the Phoenix production stuff away from the eighth day stuff. And then, you know, we had to escape through like with 60 pieces of gear, uh, through a foreign airline at a discounted price because we had a budget for it <laughs> and we did it man but yeah it's been since like march march 10th march something i think march 11th was our last show something like that yeah giant shout out to josh and the rest of the crew that stay back in amsterdam to separate our american gear from the rented european gear and got everything on the right truck to go back to european vendors versus walking i think it was like 58 pieces of fly gear through an airport yeah. i uh I, I, I try to be the TM that's the last guy out and make sure everyone gets home. But, you know, in this case, I had to go with the band and leave Josh and uh, Graham and our, our stage manager, Christian. Really, Josh and Christian together really were the heroes that got everything home. Because, um, yeah, we did, a, we, we did a show in Germany when the, the president made that first TV announcement about the travel ban. So we, uh, we, we changed our life very quickly. Yeah. Yeah, with zero discrepancies coming back too, I might add. Pretty pretty crazy. Yeah, every every person and piece of gear made it home in one piece and yeah. uh nearly in budget. Yeah. That was <laughs> it, man, shout out was, to Christian for staying back with the gear for like a whole 
extra flight. Oh, I forgot. Too. I almost forgot about that. Yeah. So, so Steve, we had a, uh, I mean, you know, I had to get 16 flights on a moment's notice uh, for, you know, we, it was 2 a.m. in Germany and I got the band on a 10 a.m. flight eight hours later. Um, but the following day, I could only get the crew and the gear on two separate flights into Detroit. So our stage manager, Christian, flew in on the first flight with the, with, uh, the first half of the gear and sat in U.S. Customs for like four hours waiting for yeah. the second flight to come in with the rest of the gear because he had the carne. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris, Christian's a true American hero for sitting in customs for like four hours true with all American the gear, hero. just just waiting for the second flight to come in with the rest of the gear so he could get it cleared by customs. <laughs> yeah, that was crazy, man. What yeah. are the logistics of flying with equipment like that? Like I have, in full disclosure, I haven't had to fly with any of my gear. It's always been, um, you know, trailered. Yeah. But we are looking at flying dates. So like if you're, if you're carting, let's say 10 cases around how do you how do you physically manage that depends what airline you're flying and everybody's got to be a team player yeah so that's that's the first rule of thumb is like our um you know there's there's a couple ways you can do it right so when you're doing fly dates you can either rent locally at your destination you can fly your stuff with you on the plane or you can freight stuff where it's you know hand serviced for you door to door Um, very few people have money for that option. Uh, we're not one of those people, you know, we fly with our gear because we have, you know, very specific gear requirements and the guys like consistency everywhere around the world and they've invested in their gear to make that happen. So one of the things that our audio company specializes in is making, uh, fly rigs you know all of our all of our stuff our backline like guitar setups rf wireless playback all of our stuff my waves rack yeah my playback rack yeah monitor dsp literally every piece of our setup except for a drum kit and my front of house rig uh converts very quickly from like traditional truck racks that roll around in north america to fly racks that go on a plane you know shout out to chris at circle three cases like that dude is the man for coming up with this system that everyone's using and we're we're using it you know like uh we switched case systems about a year and a half ago with how we were doing it and uh chris literally sent me a pallet of circle three actually no it's two pallets he sent me two pallets of circle three cases and that's what we're using so um, everything goes into Pelicans, everything's under 70 pounds. Uh, you know, the band is all based in Detroit. A lot of the crews based in Detroit, Detroit is a large international hub airport for Delta airlines. Uh, so we roll up in a panel van, cargo van, and the band is standing there looking pretty and the whole crew goes out to the curb and rolls in 50, 60, 70 pieces of gear. And, uh, you know, the Detroit airport crew knows me by name at this point. And, uh, I pull out my carne, they check it off. And, uh, um, you know, Josh is my right hand guy at the airport counter here. You know, I'll, uh, I'll be shouting for, you know, which person to step up to the counter and what piece of gear I need. And Josh has got his checklist on his iPhone of, Hey, this is checked with this person. Cause inevitably at right. the other end, something's not going to show up, you know, 
they're going to lose something. They're going to damage something. It doesn't happen often, but it happens. So yeah, we assign uh, people gear. So everyone's got like five or six or 10 pieces assigned to them or whatever. And we keep track of that. That way, if we lose something or not us, you know, that way, if the airlines lose something, we can give them a specific 10 or seven numbers to look for instead of 60. So yeah, we, 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 we know exactly what person has what piece of gear checked under their name and you know then i i slide my credit card at the end of it and uh away we go the credit card starts on fire yeah it's not it's not cheap it's not cheap to travel and tour this way but it's cheaper than freighting and it's usually not much more expensive than running locally and it gives us the consistency of our own gear so it's uh it's it's the best system I've been able to figure out as a TM. And, you know, luckily I've got a crew that's all, all hands on deck and team players. And, you know, we all work together to get it done. And luckily, you know, the, um, the patching and the cabling still stays relatively similar because we just kind of slide the racks out of their uh, U.S. cases that roll around and plop them into these Pelican airs. They got to be airs to meet under 70 pounds. So yeah, a little so- rough. You got to put some foam in there to keep them from banging around. Yeah, Steve, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the circle three fly racks. We, uh, We've sort of, you know, engineered them to a little bit beyond how Chris ships them to make them actually survive the flight, depending on what kind of gear you're placing in those racks. Because he he's done a phenomenal job of making the lightest weight fly racks anywhere so that we can stuff a ton of gear in there. But, you know, sometimes that comes at the expense of it doesn't always make it in one piece. So we've reinforced some of the bits, you know, with with foam to brace stuff or whatever. And uh, I, I think we've got it down pretty good. You know, like like Josh said, he he got him and Christian got you know, 60 pieces of gear back from Amsterdam with no damage. So that's about as good as you can ask for. That's insane. And I do know Chris, he, well, I had a production company for a couple of years here in Wisconsin and Chris built all of the cases for me. Phenomenal stuff. And then when I got the D live, he had one of the lightest uh, cases that you could fly with. So I have a D live uh, console case. I also have an SKB case. That's uh, the weatherproof waterproof thing that, um, mm-hmm you can fly with as well, but the, the circle three is definitely lighter than the SKB, which is hard to believe, but it is. Yeah, no, it's, it's awesome. Whenever I need any case for anything, I don't even call anyone else anymore. I just call Chris and say, Hey, this, this is what I need. What's the price? Yeah, he's fantastic. Um, so you mentioned waves a couple of times and I'd like to run through how you guys are using waves at front of house and at monitors. Um, can you talk through your waves configurations just a little bit? Josh, sure. you want to start? I was going to say the same. All right, cool. I'll go for it. <laughs> um, so uh, we're in a bit of a transition period right now, you know, because Waves has recently come out with Super Rack, which replaces Multi Rack. So um, Josh has made the switch at monitors to Super Rack. I have not yet made the switch at front of house. I'm still running Multi Rack. Um, I'm I've never been on, happier. I'm planning on switching to Super Rack. Um, him and I have two, you know, we're both using pro X's. We're both using waves, but, uh, our physical like computer screen setup is different. And that's the majority of it. It sounds so silly. That's the majority of the reason I haven't switched yet. You know, the, uh, the, the pro X console has the KVM switch in it. So you can have your computer screens on the internal console screen and the, um, uh, super rack display resolution requirements are not met by the Midas KVM. So, I would have I have to move physically in my rig where the wave screen lives and I have not figured out the best way to commit to that yet. So I have not switched, but um we're both doing something similar. Uh I'm running uh three lines of AES50 out of the Pro X 
into two uh, DN9650 network bridges to go from AES50 to MADI. Um, I'm then sending two MADI streams out of those 9650s into a Waves uh, MGO. I'm actually using the optical version, um, and that is giving me 56 channels of MADI at 96K. So I'm able to get 56 channels of Waves on the front of house rig, which is a lot. Um, I'm trying to send as many of my inputs as possible. Uh, I'm not necessarily using waves on every input, but for latency, um, if anyone has not watched uh, any of the experts, I was going to say there's so many people, Robert Scoville, Drew Thornton, everyone's talked about latency lately. Um, Latently. Yeah, there you go. Uh, So, you know, like hi-hats and percussion stems, like I'm not doing waves processing on that, but I've got it running through an empty rack just to keep everything in time. Since it is leaving the console doing a MADI conversion round trip, I want everything to be as coherent as I can. So, um, yeah, 56 channels of waves. I'm using waves on my channel inserts. Obviously, Midas has amazing channel processing, both EQ and dynamics. So, I'm not necessarily doing a lot of heavy lifting EQ and processing. Um, I'm using a lot of C6 in waves. You know, I probably sound like pooch. I'm using a lot of C6 in waves. Uh, you know, Mayhan will contest. I've got a C6 on just about every input. Um, yeah. You know, I've got uh, a lot of people have asked if we're using triggers on drums. The answer is no, we're not using triggers on drums. We don't need them. Gabe's got amazing drum tones. Uh, our drum tech, Nick, gets insane consistency day to day on the drum tunings. Um, you know, I'm doing some very clever processing with some some L1 limiters in waves on my channel inputs uh, to sort of get that trigger like sound. But uh, we're not using triggers, so I'm using some some limiters on the on the drums. Um, what else are we doing? I'm using like the CLA bass plugin on bass to get some bass tone because it's just a DI dry sound. Uh, yeah, I stole that from you. That was a that was a good move. Uh, I stole that from. Uh, uh, Shane from 21 pilots. Um, that is oh, actually his bass tone is so good. So fun. I, I hope I'm not spoiling anything here for those guys, but, uh, um, yeah, that, uh, that bass tone is for, uh, for Tyler. That's just straight off of his bass on stage into an accident digital into their Digico system with the five fader waves base CLA base plugin. That's 21 pilots bass tone. And I love it's so similar, so simple. And I loved it so much that I, you know, I stole it. That's, that's, that's a lot of our bass tone as well. It's just that CLA bass plugin. Um, you know, don't be afraid of the chorus on it, man. It's good. Chorus on bass is good. Every bass, especially live when there's just so much going on, you know, kick and snare right up the center. Vocals are right up the center. Like every bass needs a chorus to just send that super wide, um, get some separation there. Vocals. I'm using, I'm probably using more plugins on vocals than anything else. You know, I'm doing, um, I'm actually using waves for all of my gating across everything. I'm not using any console gates for drums, for vocals. I'm using a lot of vocal gates, which either shocks some people or it's like, oh yeah, you're, you're, you've, you're smart. You figured it out. Um, and I think we're, are you still using, you're still using vocal gates too at, at monitors, right, Josh? Oh yeah. Not, I can't not do it with Gabe back there. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, we're fortunate where we only have drum. We're we're almost a silent stage. You know, we've got a drum kit, but we don't have you know guitar amps. You know, I said we just added the maces. They're uh, 
That's right. You know, for the longest time, we were just a drum kit. Um, You know, even though we've added the Mesa amps, they're off in the wings with the guitar techs. And uh, for the longest time, we were no wedges at all. Now we've added side fills. So we're we're a nearly silent stage. Um, So, yeah, we're we're both using vocal gates. Uh, We're both using um, MIDI controllers to have hotkeys to turn the gates on and off as we need them. Um, but that's all happening with waves. You know, PSC is a lifesaver. I've got, I've, I've probably got PSC and C6 on just about everything. I've got uh, a lot of instances of PSE uh, yeah. in my waves rack for sure. And that's the closest thing that we could probably get to like a Portico plugin and not being on like the Yamaha platform. Absolutely. Like the, what is it? The 5045, I think. Yeah. Um, I would love to have one of those as a waves plugin. Yeah. Um, I know the Yamaha consoles have them built in. I'm jealous. That's that's probably the only thing I'm jealous about Yamaha for. Yeah, that's uh, silk. Yeah, for real. Uh, yeah, so a lot of PSC, a lot of C6 on all the inputs. Um, I'm also doing, um, a lot of people think I'm crazy. I do three full loops of inserts for Waves. Um, so I do channel input inserts, and then I do subgroup inserts for you know drums, bass, guitars, vocals. Um, again, not necessarily doing plugins on every subgroup, but just if one's going to waves, they're all going to waves just for latency alignment. Um, and then so subgroups, it's pretty much only C6s that I'm doing on subgroup processing and waves. And then, uh, the left, right bus is the third loop that goes to waves just for, you know, I, there's an API 2500 in there. There's F six dynamic EQ. So you don't it. feel the need to use NLS when you're on the Midas platform? Because I know that no. you like that plugin. Yeah, I do love the NLS plugin. I'm all, I mean, I learned to mix on analog. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not old. I'm one of the younger mixers on the road, but uh, I love analog. I learned how to mix on analog and I, I love that vibe. I love that sound, you know, like, I mean, you know, the first time we heard Tool, Nobby's mix is unreal on that XL4. Oh um, man. So, you know, like when I, when I first started mixing on, you know, not analog, like, you know, on profiles and SC48, it's like, yeah, I put NLS on everything the DSP would handle just to get me that, that vibe, that color. Uh, I don't feel the need to have that on the the pro series. You know, Midas is so warm and weighty in the low mids and analog sounding with the, the, the lush airy warm end as it is. I, I don't feel the need to do NLS with Midas. Yeah. Cause I'll say every time I'm doing monitors or something on like a Digico or the Avid platform, especially a profile. I mean, I got NLS everywhere, you know, yeah. on channels, on my output buses. I mean, in front of house too, but I don't have it anywhere on my Midas show file. Yeah, I think that's just a testament to how you know true to the the old days Midas is with their with their consoles. I do want to add, we are using actual Neve preamps for the vocals, though. Oh yeah, that's something not a lot of people know. We've got a uh, like Josh mentioned, we've got uh, four channels of uh, vocal wireless. We're using uh, UHFR from Sure, you know, and I'm sure eventually that'll get upgraded to Axiant as well. But you know, we've had the UHFR for a number of years. Um, for our two primary vocals, Brian and Eric, we do have uh, two actual 1073 preamps that we come out of the Sure wireless into the 1073s and we go line level out of the 1073s into the Midas pre's. Oh, I'm, I'm wildly jealous. If you can see me salivating. <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, man, our, our, our rig is a lot of audio guys, wet dreams. Like we've, we've got some cool toys for sure. We're, we're very fortunate to have the rig that we do. We've got a, yeah. we've got a band that believes in having a lot of the best stuff. And you know, me having my own company doesn't hurt their desires to have the best stuff. 
my uh my wave setups eh, it's a lot more complicated when i'm when i'm out front and from doing something but you know the the thing with this band is they want it to be an impactful in in ear mix you know they they like want to be connected with what sobek's doing out front because you know when the crowd's reacting to it and, and their ears are pumping and it sounds like awesome and it's not super clinical and like um you know sterile um like it helps them vibe with the show. And we've talked about that and the, like me and Gabe and I, I keep bringing up Gabe, their drummer, but he's just so vocal about feedback and stuff. And, and he likes that. And, you know, he, we have conversations that like, you know, he knows if I compress and kind of gate, maybe the snare a little bit. So it's like thwacky and hitting him in the chest. Every time he cracks it, uh, he might lose a little bit of dynamics in uh, his ghost notes or like, you know, softening up on uh, Tom rolls and stuff like that. So we all have conversations about that, but um I, I I've really reared back on the amount of plugins that I use, or I, at least I kind of did. Cause when I first started using waves with Midas, I paid for my own rack. So I, you know, I was like excited to have it. I wanted to strap stuff across everything. And it's funny. You just run into a lot of issues kind of down the line and like, you know, high end starts getting hyped and then I kind of get fatigued like a few weeks into the tour and kind of lose sense of what's going on. And I feel like that even translates across to the dudes too. And if they have too much going on in their ears, like, they can get fatigued as well, especially like the singers um, being by, like right in front of the drum kit. So I'm really just using waves now to try and like uh, within phase align my kicks and snares together, align the overheads to the snare, the bass, the bass at DI is always kind of lines up with the other channel. So I don't really ever have to do that, but we we added the, the Mesa amps too and the cabs. So I'm using, and, and Josh does the same thing too, I think but uh yeah actually and I, I got this i got this from you you started doing it first and i was like okay i need i need to copy what you're doing and dude especially with those guitar cabs man because we yes. blend them like we are using the fractal tone and then we're using the amp and then we have specific amount of effects coming through the di and then we have either like effects or the lack of effects coming through the amp and we we blend that together and if you have phase issues like it's not good it's not gonna sound good so you have to really, really be careful when you're doing it so that it lines up. And, uh, you know, we've got like emergency backup files to where if like we're having issues with the cabs or we need to scale it back for a show, we can put the old uh, fractal presets in the fractal so that all the effects are running through it the way they should. And that's a testament to Josh. He did all that, all the mad science work on that. Thanks. And then, and um, as I say, we also both have uh, emergency backup Midas scenes that yeah. get rid of all the waves inserts if waves ever crashes yes and i'm juicing the compression on the channels a little bit harder the eq is a little more exaggerated that type of thing but yep, yeah same. like i'm i'm not doing like eq too much in waves like i'm doing things that i can't do on the console like lately like that's what i'm saying is i started pulling all this stuff off but lately i've been kind of putting things back on so it looks kind of like how it used to the amount of plugins that are there but it's so much more like meaningful like i've got f6 on a kick drum and snare drum that boosts top end when it when it you know here's a transient but then it gets rid of it and then like even on the snare drum after that it ducks a shelf like negative 4 db so like get rid of hi-hat bleed so really all you need is the attack to be there for the top end so like i can't do that on the console so that's a ten thousand dollar mix trip right there everybody that's <laughs> that's that's, that's, a, that's a brilliant little secret that far too few people know about yeah, man. And dude, and especially in monitors and in the, in, in the ears, you can just hear those splashes yeah. so clearly and, and God, it's just so fatiguing and annoying. And then on the outputs, I've kind of stolen my good friend Tater, man. He, he's a Detroit guy too. So I go and hang up with him, hang out with him anytime I can, but he uses L2 and vitamin on his outputs. 
And so I also use L2 and vitamin on my outputs because he's right. I mean, one, I like to be able to look at my transmitters and not see them clipping. So L2 is a huge thing. And I'm not digging into it. It's just down there to make sure that I'm not seeing red. Um, a little, you know, harmonic enhancement with vitamin. And then I don't do anything on the top end with it. And it kind of helps keep the symbols down. That's like one of the things that he talked about. So I really took, you know, um, some advice with that. And I think I was just watching a video of his online when I saw that one. But uh, another thing, man, is uh, I got like a compressor on the output and, you know, our singers will dig into it and it kind of like compresses the whole mix to where they can only kind of hear their vocal through it. I know it sounds backwards, but like you get like 8 dB of reduction on the entire mix when a singer's pushing in and it kind of puts their vocal at the forefront. It's kind of like putting a, a compressor on a guitar group and then slamming a lead channel because it kind of can put, adds more compression to the guitar group and makes that solo poke out a little bit so it's kind of the same theory and then when they back off the mix like comes up sucks right back up and they can understand like the context of what's going on and i wasn't doing that for a while with their singer and he wanted so much vocal but then he back off and like was like didn't have all this context of the mix anymore you know and you can do it with like side chaining or something too i'm sure but i just really like the way the compressor sounds when you dig into it like that um do you have a venmo that people should send money to when they start using that ducker <laughs> trick that you'd like <laughs> payment through <laughs> i'm locked out of my venmo so let's just do apple cash then okay noted i'll uh, put it in the show notes um what are you using for uh, ambient mics or crowd mics for the band do you just use uh, left right or do you have additional stage mics or anything like that to sort of give them that that feel although with not using too many live cabs i guess they probably don't need it so uh yeah we do use um crowd mics and i'm gonna let josh talk about it because he's actually the one that picked out our array of mics and i mean they're they're very good i really like what we do and it's a good blend between having like shotgun mics and what you would be doing on a really big outdoor festival and still facilitating that same kind of sound at like a, if we're doing a house of blues or even like a hockey arena um because we use four there's two on each side um and yeah i i slam those in in the uh in-ear mixes but it's only in between sets or in, in between songs or down parts so that they can feel the tension from the crowd or the energy from the crowd. Um, I used to leave them up, but it just gets so uh, cloudy. So I just kind of ride them. I got them on a VCA. But yeah, Josh, talk about the the, the mic selection that you went, because I really like what, what you chose, and I don't have any intentions on changing it. I'm glad that you've hyped it up now, because if we would have started by telling you what we use, you would think that that is just the weirdest thing that anyone's ever heard of. Yeah. Um, so we, like you said, we use four mics, two on each side of the stage. It's two stereo pairs. Uh, the first stereo pair is uh, Shure Beta 98s, the little, little Tom mics. Um, and we've got those like clamped to a short boom and sort of aimed do you, josh are you still kind of like aiming them in at the front row like at a 45 degree towards the center yep yeah so like so the idea is uh philosophy behind it is like crowd mics are doing two things it's uh because it's it's trying to make you replicate if you didn't have in ears in in the first place right so uh i'm trying to accomplish two things i'm trying to give the guys a uh, sense of like hearing what's immediately in front of them in the front row, like if they could hear the front row screaming at them if they didn't have their ears in, but then also giving them the sense of like this giant room that they're in with all these thousands of screaming people at the same time. So I couldn't find just a single stereo pair of mics that accomplished both of those things. So what we do is we use these little Beta 98s kind of aimed in at the front row to give them that immediate intimacy of the people that are right in front of them talking to them 
almost as if they don't have the ears in to begin with. And then uh, uh, we don't use shotguns because we're, we're, we're frequently going between hockey arenas, outdoor fields for festivals, and then House of Blues, sometimes all in the same week. So uh, the second pair of mics is actually uh, the Sennheiser 906, the flat guitar mics, um, which surprises a lot of people. It's a fantastic crowd mic. Uh, yeah, 10 out of 10. Yeah. So very few people know that. So we're, we're blending those four mics together. Like we'll, we'll aim the 98s in at the front row and then the 906s will kind of, you know, get either straight out or like if we're in arena, maybe angled up a little bit to catch the full sound of the arena. Um, and yeah, those four mics blended together, give the guys a really accurate picture of both the intimate people right in front of them, as well as kind of the, the room as a whole. I think if you would have given me a thousand guesses, I would have not come up on that combination. So I, like I said, I'm, I'm glad Josh hyped it up and said how well it works first before I told you what it is, because it's, it's weird. I've never seen anyone else do it. And a lot of people ask us about it when they see it, because um, it's, it's a weird looking thing. You know, we got on each side of the stage, there's a short boom stand that has a guitar mic pointed outwards and a 98 clamped to the side of it pointing at the front row. It's a weird thing to look at, but it just works so well. I've never noticed it at a at an I Prevail show, but now I'm going to look for it the next time I go catch you guys. So that there you go, uh, and I'll Instagram it so it's proof that it works. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're coming up on an hour here, and I, I know that uh, you guys have some other things to do as well. So I want to just real quickly, can you run down uh, mics that you're using on drums and vocals? So I know you're on uh, the Sure UHFR system, but what are you using for capsules? And then uh, just run me through your drum mics real quick. Sure. Uh, vocals, we are very, very happy to be part of the Telefunken Mike's family. Connor. We love you, out, Connor. Shout out to Connor at Telefunken. He hooks us up. We uh, All of our vocals, exclusively Telefunken. Um, if anything happens on the road, literally, I call Connor the next day. I've got a replacement. I send him something out. He gets it fixed. He's amazing. Super, super happy for the support at Telefunken. And the guys love how they sound. You know, like... Um, uh, Brian, who's doing clean vocals, is on an M80. He's got the the chromed out M80. He loves how blingy it is. Makes him happy. Uh, makes him feel important. You know that's that's important. You know, as a singer, you got to like what you're singing into. So, um, Eric, who's screaming, is on the M81. Uh, we tried an M80 for him. It just didn't do quite what we needed it to. So obviously, you know, he's a screamer. He's going to cup the mic. So the the pattern on the M81 is a little different. It's got a little different frequency response. That worked really well for him. And, and then, I just want to uh, say, if anyone's struggling with cymbal bleed and it's like just devastating and you, you got to have something, try an M81. Like the tonal response is yep. a little different. You know, you get a little more low end out of it, which is cool. And I, I like it a lot. But uh, M80 is a really good standard rock vocal mic. But boy, dude, the M81 just rejects a drum kit so well. Yep. Love it. Yeah. And we really wanted to be all telefunken and for the longest time eric was the last one that was still on a beta 58 because we couldn't find something that worked and then connor sent a demo of an m81 capsule and it was like one song in and we all knew it was like yes this is this is what we've been looking for the m81 is so perfect for the way he cups the mic and the amount of bleed we've got on stage and then uh dylan on background vocals is just another m80 and that's and that's the three vocals and then we got a spare cool yeah I need to check out that M81. Uh, sorry to interrupt, because um, Mixie, my my vocalist for Stitched Up Heart, she's a real quiet singer, and our drummer mm -hmm. is like your drummer. He wails the crap out of his drums. <laughs> and so I've tried uh, DPA capsules. She didn't like the sound of it. 
tried the SE uh, V7. She didn't like the feel of it. And so she's really? back on a 58 again. Uh, and I just get so much wash. So I'm going to try to reach out to Connor and get an M81 the next time we get to get out on the road and see if she'll like that one. So the M81 is awesome for, yeah. uh, for a female vocal too. Cause it's got that extra body kind of like 250, mm-hmm. 300 ish in the low mids. I mean, a lot of times you go scoop that out, but you know, for like a female vocals, it's kind of nice to have that in there. Yeah. My fingers are crossed. So, okay. Sorry. Uh, we'll jump back over to drums. Yeah. Josh, you want to run through drum mics? Um, yeah, we're doing the, Best friend combination, good old 91 D6 for kick in, kick out. Yep. Um, like like Sobek said, we're not running any drum samples or anything. We've talked about putting triggers in the kick and toms and snares and all that, but just to trigger gates from. Um, we haven't done that. Again, uh, um, it, it might be down the line. We're kind of, I guess, focused on other things, more like just getting back to work at this point, but that is a potential. Um, we really, 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 really like the Telefunken M80 uh, SH on snare top. And it's just got so much crack and body. So we use that on snare top. Um, we use a 904 on snare bottom still, right? Yep. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yep. And then, uh, so back actually, we've used an ATM 450 on the hi-hat for the longest time. I mean, ever since I met the dudes at Fitzgerald's and like, I remember seeing that mic. I was like, that's a weird choice, but sounds great. I mean, if anybody wants a badass hi-hat mic, dude, Audio-Technica ATM450 is what, what you want to go with. It's just really good, man. It's smooth. I don't have to do a lot of those weird like upper mid cuts or like the 10K cut or like the DSing thing. It just smooths it out. It's real nice. Um, and it's also got then, such a tight pickup pattern against the snare. There's not a lot of bleed. Right, right, which is awesome for live. And I know in the studio sometimes like, you know, CLA likes to get that snare bleed in the hi-hat mic. <laughs> I'm trying to be more controlled in my live environment. So yeah. I, I like the 450 a lot. Um, we're using another set of uh, Beta 98 AMPs on the Toms, and that is a recent thing. And we are both big fans, big, big fans. Um, I'm actually not running my Toms through Waves because I'm a little limited on my IO because I'm running all my in-ear uh, mixes through Waves. So I just opted out on the Toms. Um, and I haven't really noticed any weird phasing. Maybe it, maybe it could be better, but it, it's fine. We're gating them pretty hard. Um, but ever since we added the AMPs, it's, it's really hyped them up to kind of sound because I want to use Renax on Toms, man. Like Renax on Toms is awesome. And, um, it really adds a lot of that body and kind of resonance that we were missing out before on the dynamic mics. Um, and then, yeah, just a match pair of stereo AKG C214s for overheads. And, um, we measure them equidistant from the snare and then equidistant from each other. So it creates a triangle and. We're, we're big, big proponents on keeping the snare in phase um, with the top overhead mics because Josh and I both mix top down, I guess, from a drum kit. Like we, we yep. really use the overheads as uh, an entire image of the drum kit. And if you're not doing that, you're mixing wrong. And I know mixing subjective, but I stand <laughs> by that. Hey, um, you know what? You, you talked me into that because when you, when I hired you for the band for monitors, uh, you know, I was doing like the the not quite underheads they were like the spaced pair in front of the kit just for visuals right. and you were the one that talked me into going back to traditional overheads and it changed my snare sound in the most amazing way and um you know you measuring with that tape measure every single day to get that triangle um it's insane steve like i've i've taken some of the show recordings in pro tools and done some post production mixes on the show recordings and the the left and right overheads will be like within two or three samples of each other 
alignment. It's it's insane how accurate Josh and Michael, our system tech, get these overheads, and it makes the world of difference. If you're if you're not breaking out a tape measure and actually aligning your overheads every day, it's it's a huge game changer. Yeah, and it looks a little wonky. You know, people come up, they're like, "Hey, one overhead's higher than the other." I'm like, "Yeah, I know. Trust me, it's gonna be <laughs> fine." Uh, but it's a big deal, man. You know, and we're you know we have the symbols panned pretty pretty hard, and you know we're getting snare from it intentionally, and if if oh man i mean if it's leaning it's gonna be weird but if they're out of phase then you're just gonna be slamming eqs and compressors trying to make something happen that's just not and you're gonna have a pretty destroyed mix to be within a couple of samples that's impressive uh because it's not milliseconds it's samples yeah. which is insanely yeah. precise yeah no i i did i texted him I, I texted him a screenshot i was like these two overheads with this snare transient are three samples apart from each other that's insane yeah, and at 96K, that's almost immeasurable, the amount of time yeah. that is. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's uh, well done. So <laughs> Thank uh, you, sir. Um, I say during the pandemic, if you want, you can Apple Cash uh, payments to uh, Josh Mahan for the F6 <laughs> Ducker trick and then also for uh, getting him or using his tip to uh, measure that precisely on your overheads and, and damn the symmetry, like as long as it's uh in uh in in phase and, and yeah and your snare i mean you're you're not going to lose any symmetry with your snare that's what it's all about your snare is going to be perfectly up and down the snare yeah one one symbol might be louder than the other whatever your snare is right that's all that matters <laughs> that's what eq is for yep all right well guys uh we went a little bit over time that's but okay your discussion and information was absolutely fascinating um i could talk to you guys like i said for hours but i know you've got things to do so what are you guys, uh, what are you working on while we're not working right now? Um, just real briefly, what's keeping you guys busy? Well, I guess that depends when this is going to air because there's some things I can't talk about right now. <laughs> um, I've been doing a lot of studio work. Uh, there's there's some stuff that's not announced or released yet that I'm very excited about. I just turned in my uh, first major label release uh, as a mixer in the studio, which was super exciting. Um, been staying busy here in Phoenix. You know, there's some churches that are open and meeting. So I've been helping out some churches in the Phoenix area with some live audio. Um, went and installed a, a new D&B PA to church a, about a month ago. So that was super fun. Take some some touring knowledge, brought in some touring friends to rig up a PA and do, do some install work. That was awesome. So I was there. That was one of the things I did. Yeah, you were one of the guys <laughs> I brought in for that. It was awesome. Um, yeah, so just just doing some local work in Phoenix with what's open in Arizona and doing a doing a lot of studio work. You know, it's 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 been a you know pivot is the word of 2020, and uh, you know when live sound can't happen, you know I've got a a nice little cool mix room here in Arizona that I'm able to do studio work in. So I'm thankful for that. Josh Mahan, what are you doing? I, I it's kind of a similar story on a lesser scale. Maybe I've I've been um getting in any little you know restaurant that's doing an ipad mixing gig or uh i did my first drive-in you know it was awesome i was on a profile again walked up during a sound check for the headliner to replace somebody who got sick and just started like dialing and smiling and looking around and like yeah what's up everybody <laughs> and uh, that felt crazy which was cool so um trying to get as many of those gigs as i can they're kind of fun to do um but yeah man just digging into the studio stuff i've been getting a lot more serious about it just at home uh doing mixing just writing with my friends been helping out a couple studios around town to just kind of poke around um uh, yeah i think josh and i are both mixing more than the studio so if anybody listening needs a studio mix done 
for yes, sir. a manageable price. And you want it to be done by the I Prevail dudes. We're your boys. There you go. No, I mean, it's like you said earlier, like if Steve, if, if someone's coming out of this pandemic and they aren't smarter or a better mixer, like, I don't know what to say. Like, I, I am so, so ready and so excited to get back to what we, we all do and what we love doing. And it's like, um, I don't know about you, Josh, but I feel like I've gotten to be like such a better mixer and so much better at my craft with all this time that I never would have had the opportunity. Like I've, I've never been a great studio mixer, you know, like everyone can poke around in Pro Tools, but it's like these last few months have been forced to just sit down and actually get good at it every day, which is, you know, I'm, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take it for what it is. Obviously this whole situation sucks, but you know, I'm going to make the best of it. And I've, you know, I was thrown an opportunity to do a studio album. So it's like, all right, buckle up, man up. Let's go. Let's learn how to do it. Let's get good at it. And Hey, you know what? The band loved it at the end. And now I've got a new skill that I didn't have before this. Right. Yeah. I'm, I, I definitely wouldn't have advertised that I could do studio mixing, even though I did it in my free time before, but now I'm, you know, actually confident in it to at least, you know, maybe talk about it. So if, yeah, if you're not coming out of this a smarter individual, then you're definitely doing something wrong. I can't tell you how many freaking audio podcasts I've listened to. Pooch and Raybold, y'all are the boys. Yes. And even, you know, Drew Thornton's podcast that he's, he's bringing up. That's pretty cool. Everyone's doing it. I've been poking around everybody's stuff. Yeah. So fun fact, you know, and I, I recently, you know, I moved from Michigan to Arizona during this pandemic and uh, Josh rode in the moving truck with me shotgun. The two of us were in the truck together for five days and uh, we listened to a lot of audio podcasts over those five days. Oh yeah. A lot of latency discussions. Yes. A lot of latency discussions, a lot of, a lot of PA preference discussions, a lot of console pros and cons discussions. Yeah. That's uh. It's it's been a mixed blessing. I I totally agree, and I'm looking at my list of uh, podcasts that I need to catch up on. I've got them hanging in front of me, and I don't know. There's like eleven or twelve uh, podcasts that I've got that I I need to listen to, and and I just haven't had time because I'm busy with these or listening to other podcasts that are on a different list. So I totally get it. All right, well, let's put a bow on this one. Uh, you guys were fantastic. I'm so grateful for your time and really appreciate the insight that you gave us into the iPrevail rig, how you guys operate, what you're doing. Um, parting parting question, uh, what are your Waves servers that you're using? Are you using Extremes, Impacts? So I, we're both on the same one, right? We're both on server one, the middle yeah, level? Yeah, I'm server one. Yeah, so um, I got my Wave server back when I had the Pro 2C rig. Um, and at the time my company wasn't really a company. So I was, you know, a little cash strapped. I wanted the extreme server, couldn't truly afford it. So I went with the mid range server one. And honestly, to this day with, uh, you know, like we both talked about the, the Midas pro series sounds so good that we're not using a ton of waves, you know, like, um, there's a venue here in Phoenix I've been doing that has, uh, an Avid S6L. They've got an extreme server. And I'm like maxing it out because I want to use more waves on the Avid console because I need it. Whereas I feel like on the Midas, I don't need it. So, you know, I'm getting by with the server one. I was going to say, we didn't even bring that up because uh, we're, we're using all time base effects and delays. You know, all, all the effects are done on the console. We're not yep. using waves or any of that. Yep. Um, so, yeah, we're, you know, the fact that we're not using reverbs and it's not having to calculate delay times and all that or decay times, excuse me. Um, we're, we're, we're both running them in the green, you know. Yep. It's been nice. Cool. 
Yeah, I was surprised to to learn how much horsepower it takes to run a reverb through waves. Like that that taxes them for some reason, but yeah. it, it makes sense. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and I mean, again, it's this this whole podcast is a Midas advertisement. The everything about the Pro Series just sounds so good. Those those built in effects, and you know, the Pro X has twenty four effects slots. It's like, um, I don't know what Josh is doing, but you know, we've got three singers. I've got two reverbs for each singer. So, you know, I've I've got six reverbs just for vocals because I can because I've got that many slots yeah everybody has their own reverb I used to do too but I've kind of reared back to just hone in on important things I got real excited yeah. when we first got on pro x but yeah everybody <laughs> does have their own their own reverb yeah awesome all right well we'll end it there uh I dragged this out a little bit longer but that thought came to mind and I, I can't help myself so that's okay uh guys thank you so much it was an absolute pleasure to have you on and uh I wish you the very best and I can't wait until we're on the road and our cross our paths cross um I'll definitely say hi and steal some of your ideas uh when I'm hanging out and watching you guys mix live sounds good uh, definitely come hang out next time we're on the road yeah thanks for having us man appreciate it brother And that's a wrap on this episode of Mix Masters. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please be sure to subscribe and then tell a friend or maybe leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I'd certainly appreciate it. I produce Mix Masters on the Allen & Heath DLive system with Sure microphones and a little help from Apple's Logic Pro X and some Waves SoundGrid plugins. One more round of thanks to Merritt Goodwin for the music. And until next time, stay safe and healthy. And thanks again for listening.